Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 0000185 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be hosting this show for you through to 8 o'clock this evening, broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters, which we know is at the end of the 96 line in East Brunswick, which is on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you, Vaughnie, for an excellent year of broadcasting. He'll be back in February to uh, dish out some more double bounce for us. He's taking a well-earned break. It's been a disjointed year for uh, many of us, and um, great thing about this radio station is that it's been a constant throughout the last three years, and the ups and downs of, uh, of this year in particular. Now, this is the final mission of the year, and... What a year it's been. Shortly I'll be joined in studio by uh, Yorta Yorta Man and friend of the show, Ian Ham. We're going to break down the year in review and have a look at what's happening in uh, 2023. The way I see it for Mob is that the challenge in 2023 will be not to be the object of discussion, not to be the object of national conversations, but to be the driver of those conversations and those discussions. It's uh, purported to be a year where a referendum will be coming up, read the voice and constitutional reform that's required to install that voice. Um, 2022 was hard enough as it was with state and federal elections. And so now us, and particularly in the Aboriginal community, have to prepare ourselves for the grind of a referendum that no doubt at times will get nasty. And so the challenge for us is is to make sure that we're not the object of that that we are participating in that conversation and driving it, no matter what view we have on what's coming up in the new year. Treaty here in Victoria will continue to march forward. There will be elections for a new First Peoples Assembly of Victoria in May and June of next year. The Uruk Justice Commission will continue on down the road of truth-telling, and there's been uh, an important couple of weeks of that uh, this month. So hopefully that will continue on to the new year. It's great to see that there's been some reportage from the mainstream media around some of the issues that have been discussed there. And, of course, we'll get the perennial update on closing the gap targets. And who knows what else will happen amongst all of that. Something, no doubt, will. But, uh, of course, this program will be here to speak to the main players and the people affected by all of this activity. Uh, The plan for me next year is to be uh, far more present. I've been busy this year writing things. Hopefully by the time I'm back in uh, February, some of those things will have, uh, well, let's just say they would be under more control than they have been this year. So the idea is for me to be more present and to uh, really involve myself in this show. Uh, The thousand percent it sort of requires... Um, if you want to text in during the program, there is a text line, 04669819027. But stick around because this is the mission on 102.73 Triple RFM. 
Garangalia there with one voice. And before that, we heard change has to come by the one and only and mighty Moju. It is 10 past seven this Tuesday evening. Listen to the mission on 102.73 Triple RFM. Or perhaps you're listening to us later in the week through the National Indigenous Radio Service. However you're listening, welcome. Now, to uh, tonight's one and only guest, we thought that we would take this last episode of the mission to basically unpack the year that was and have a bit of a look forward to the year ahead. So the fellow that's sitting in front of me right now is Ian Ham. He's a Yorta Yorta man. He was from Shepparton in central Victoria. Um, he's a member of the Stolen Generations. And he's on a plethora of boards. He's involved in organisations and associations. So rather than me having to go through all this again, because I think this is about your sixth appearance on the show. Yes, it is, Daniel. <laughs> tell us the boards that you're on. Okay, if I've... Oh, this will stretch me. <laughs> I'll try and do this from memory. So I'm on the board of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. I'm chairman of the board. Yep. I'm chair of the Koori Heritage Trust. I'm chair of Connecting Home. I'm chair of the Community Broadcast Foundation. And I'm chair of the First Nations Foundation. They're the ones I chair. The yep. ones I'm on, Yarra Valley Water, Holmes Glen TAFE, um, the Healing Foundation, uh, the Australian Red Cross... Uh, what else am I on? Inclusive Australia. Um, this is where I start to get into trouble. <laughs> I'm on others. As you're well. on others as well. Yep. Uh, so to say you're a busy fellow is kind of like an understatement. Yes, yeah, that would be. Uh, except this is what I do for a living now. This and a yeah. few other things. So in one sense, yes, I'm I'm busy. Uh, but given that I devote my whole time to it, to not-for-profit and public-purpose organisations, uh, it's pretty good. It's kind of got to be a bit, little bit better than the nine-to-five grind, doesn't oh, it? Oh, hell yes, yeah. I, I'd never, to be honest, I'd never go back to a single job again. You know, like yeah. the, the same deal day in, day out, five days a week. Because uh, the good thing about what I, I get to see a whole bunch of different things and see how it all connects together and how it doesn't connect together one day I can be doing water for Melbourne. Yep. The next day I can be doing Indigenous land purchase in Western Australia. The day after that I can be in, um, I don't know, Canberra dealing with Community First Development. There's another yeah. board I'm okay. on. Okay, well, yep. good, good thing you mentioned them as well. Absolutely, great organisation. So that's why, we got you. <laughs> that's why we got you on the show because you've got an overview of um, a whole range of issues but you also got an overview of how these things interconnect. Mm. So we thought we'd, we'd cover off on the on the sort of major ticket items that have been sort of brewing away this year and for a number of years in some cases. So um, next year is going to be a big year for us um, as a country, not just us as, as mob. Mm. And when I say that I'm referring, you know, particularly to the referendum that will be coming up around the, the Uluru Statement, and the voice to parliament and everything that's associated with with that. Um, what's your read on how things, you know, very broadly, let's start off, uh, what's your read on how things are sort of brewing away there and setting themselves up for, for what will be, for many of us, a bit of a tumultuous year? Yeah, look, I, uh, I think the groundwork has started, but I don't know if enough groundwork has been laid. We're, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an awfully short timetable. This time next year, this referendum is done and dusted. Yes. Is that enough time to lay the groundwork, to run the arguments, to fill in the gaps? There are a lot of gaps with this that people don't know how you, how you adequately respond to that. 
um, for people to be clear in their mind whether they support it or don't support it, I think it's an enormous an enormous lot to do in a terribly short period of time. And you can even cut, I mean, if you even from today, you cut out January. So you're a yeah. month short already, right? And then you're looking at if the latest they want to do this is November, uh, if not sooner, that's that's really tight. That's 10 months. To to articulate your argument, to deal with to deal with the diversionary tactics that will come up, and there will be those, to reinforce why we should do this, um, yeah, and give people a confidence when they walk in to vote that um, they're clear on what they're voting on and why they're supporting what side they're supporting. I think one of the things that um, I don't know whether it's an added complication or not, but the government has said that they won't be publicly funding. Um, either side of of the debate, and so I'm thinking to myself, um, where are the resources going to come to launch the campaign? That and it's going to have to be a very, very, very big campaign mm. to to get a yes vote up, depending on what the question is. Where do they, where do they even start with that sort of the funds needed for that? Yeah, and that's a, it's actually interesting that they did that because if they funded a yes campaign, they also have to fund a no campaign. Yeah. So by not funding not funding a four campaign, they also get out of funding a no vote, which in one sense kind of tests the, the, the support both cases have, yeah. which is really important. So if you look at the, the surveys that have been done, at least 60%, if not up to 70% of Australians support the idea of a voice. There will be a, a group that don't support it and there'll be a group who are undecided. Now, none of those are locked in, but if you go on those figures then the attraction of money to either campaign should reflect those figures. That is, the bulk of money will go to the yes campaign from the general public and the minority of money will go to the no campaign from the general public. So in one sense, I guess it's a litmus test about how well this is uh, being supported by the general public. The other part of it, though, is then how well do you use that money? That's that's yeah. something which, which, is a, which is a whole nother, another subject in its own right. So what I can kind of foresee with... The, the yes campaign, I can see a bunch of, you know, a big bunch of corporates yep. potentially coming on, maybe some um, uh, mining companies looking to whitewash their image <laughs> <laughs> a little bit and get behind the, uh, the yes campaign. But um, what we've seen so far, particularly from, from the Nationals, and uh, I think it was Jacinda Price, yeah, yeah. Senator, who came out and, uh, you know, did a sky after dark type attack on Linda Burney, yep. the Minister for Indigenous Australians. Um, it, it potentially promises, well, I think it does promise to be quite nasty throughout. If, 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 if it's allowed to descend to that level. Yeah. So, so one thing I think that we have to do, and this is, some, this is lessons you learn off previous things. So remember the Republic referendum. Now, Certainly. Wh- one of the problems with that is people attacking the royal family. That's, you don't do that. That's not how you convince people to vote for a republic by having a crack at the royal family. What the Republicans didn't do enough of was run the argument of why this is good for Australia. Um, and they didn't run it well enough for the ordinary citizen. What they did was run it well enough to convince themselves again. Yep. But they were already in the camp. And so those who didn't want it, you know, well, John Howard played a masterful piece of politics. Well, he, he, he devised the question in such a way that split the, the yes Republic, vote in except, it, two or three ways? Yeah, yeah, I split it a heap of ways. But there was this thing of you've got to articulate your argument why people should support you and not engaging why they shouldn't support the other. So so I think that that has to be worked out. 
by the Yes campaign really quickly. How do I get the punters out there who are not deeply engaged in this one way or the other, who are the disinterested, the disengaged, the um, the ambiguous, the those who are just waiting to be, tell me why I should vote yes to this or tell me why I should vote no. Yeah. We need to aim a campaign at them. And remember, they're not people with law degrees. They're not great on constitutional law nor on the mechanism of parliament. How do you get those people over the line to support this? I think one of the... I mean, um, I think as most people would know, you need a, a majority of votes in a majority of states. Yep. And that throughout history has proven to be very, very difficult. The thing that the people are talking about now in terms of getting that majority of votes in majority of states is the rise of the millennials yep. and the slow decline in terms of pure numbers of, of the boomers. The boomers, yeah. Um, do you think that now that the, the millennials are pretty much the major voting bloc across the country and have shown themselves to be more socially progressive and interested in true history and bringing... Uh, Aboriginal culture to the fore in terms of the way we tell the story of this country, do you think that that block of voters might be the difference between yes and no? I think it, I think that that will be a, a fair slab of the, of the vote, but the question is, do you... And see, this is where you can't ignore the boomers or the ones in between, whatever they are. Gen Xs, Gen Xs yeah. I, I think we're both... You're not a boomer. Sadly, I'm a boomer by about three months, I've been told. (laughs) I argue about that, I can tell you. Wow, what are you doing here? But go on. Back to ABC Melbourne with you. (laughs) There's nothing wrong. No, no, I know, I know. I'm not knocking it. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, I think that you're right about the millennials, but we need to win this, or this needs to be won, rather. Broadly. By broadly and by a substantive amount. This has got to be win. This has got to be won by eighty percent in each of the jurisdictions and eighty percent of the overall vote. Yeah, that's what it's got to be won. Because if you win it, if you just get it over the line, say it wins fifty-five, forty-five, that's an argument for somebody to run it five years from now and say, "Oh, we made a mistake," or "Wasn't really supported." I want to run it again, and it can lose. You know, it's it's that. So yeah. so you've got to win it and win it convincingly, so that it's just done and dusted for all time. So yes, you're right. The millennials are very much going to count in this, but don't discount the Gen Xs and even the Boomers themselves. That gets you this huge margin that we really need for this. Zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven is the text line if you want to join in this uh, lengthy conversation that we're going to have around a, a number of issues affecting all of us. I mean, I think that's the thing we need to remind everyone is that uh, truth-telling, closing the gap, uh, treaty, Uluru, referendum, they are things that affect all Australians if you think about things in a, in a broader sense. Um, let's have a look at the major parties as where they sit at the moment when it comes to the referendum. So the Nationals have come out and said, no, they're not going to support it, even though they haven't um, heard the question or read the question. Mm. The ALP, as the government are obviously supporting it and pushing it quite hard, seems to be a bit of a pet project for the Prime Minister. Um, The Teals. Now, as far as I know, the Teals seem to be on board with it. I haven't heard yet. I haven't heard the rhetoric around, well, we need to see the detail from them. I think from my understanding, across that cross branch, there seems to be a a fair bit of uh, support. Mm. Um, The Liberals, 
Now, they are still sitting on the fence to a certain extent, but we have elders in the Liberal Party like John Howard, who is making noises about sort of opposing the the voice. Um, where do you think the, the Liberals will come down on this? I, I think they're going to spend some time on the psychologist couch to start with because there's a fair <laughs> bit going on there. But once we move past that, I think the, li- couch. the, the, the Liberals actually... And they're having to deal with the Nationals as well because although David Littleproud and a group of Nationals, which he said were the Nationals, came yeah. out, there were a number of Nationals who weren't in the room that Michael day. Michael McCormack being one, former yes, leader. who said... Uh, maybe we're not locked in, you know, more detail or something, we could reverse our decision in six months. That's that's uh, That was him the next day reading the tea leaves saying, oh, we might need an out with this. There was another national member who wasn't in the party room that day who said, well, I support the voice. Quite clearly, I think it's a good idea. So I'm not, I'm not in line with the party position. So the nationals are looking a bit flaky there. Uh, the Liberal Party, they actually have quite a few ideological questions within the party. Peter Dutton has to look at, I've got my own hard right flank that I have to deal with who will oppose anything socially progressive. Equally, I've got senators, well, Senator Andrew Bragg, who is Mm. um, a very, he's progressive for the Liberal Party. And Simon Birmingham, now he's shed his his Scott Morrison, he's he's proving to be a, a progressive as well. So there is a growing progressive wing of the Liberal Party. Peter Dutton has to find a way forward with that, um, trying to keep what what appears to be the Nationals themselves going through that kind of thinking about where do I place this party. I think he's... Peter Dutton, like him or loathe him, I recognise a smart politician. Mm -hmm. He's smart enough to know that if he takes a hard line against this too early, he'll be be looked at as, well, that's Peter Dutton. Mm -hmm. And that will not only lock them out of this debate, it'll also lock him out of being perhaps a future Prime Minister. So he needs to think about that. So I think there's a fair bit of play that the Liberals have to think about. I I would not expect them to announce a position for quite some time yet. They're going to let it play out and see where it where it's starting to go before they decide where are we going to put our put our uh, position. The way I would see it with Peter Dutton too is also an opportunity for him to atone for walking out on the uh, apology to the stolen generations. One of two government MPs that did that day, the other one being Sophie Mirabella. Yep. Um, Do you think that would weigh on his conscience at all? He's he's smart enough to know that if he wants to... If he ever wants to be Prime Minister, he's got to appeal to the middle ground. Um, This so-called base of the Liberal Party... Do you know that's a word transplanted from the American Republican Party? The base? Yes, I do, I do. Yeah, so when they talk about the base... They talk about the base, but they also talk about... But they're not recognising that... In the American context, they have uh, uh, voluntary voting there, where yes. we have compulsory, compulsory voting here. So you don't have to go for the base like you do here in Australia, no. like you do in America, okay. because, like you keep saying, if you're going to become a government, you become a prime minister, then you need to broadly find that middle ground. Exactly, that's exactly right. So he's he if he's got any brains, he'll be working. What he'll be thinking about while there are people on our right who you know who make noises. They're not ever going to deliver us government. They're not going to get us in the mind of the middle ground. And it's interesting, the Teals, the Teals, socially progressive but economically conservative, yep. that's actually what the Liberal Party used, used to, to be. be. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, it's 26 past seven. You listen to the mission on uh, 102.73 RRFN. I'm speaking with Ian Ham about uh, 
Well, things that have happened in the past and, and looking into the tea leaves of uh, things that will be happening in the future. And I guess that brings us to the Greens. The Greens, uh, as a policy position, support the Uluru Statement from the Heart and its um, and the voice embedded in the in the Constitution. There have been uh, rumblings, more than rumblings, from a friend of the show, uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe, um, around opposition to the voice. She has come out and said that she won't be running a no campaign against it. Um, she's very much forthright in her um, uh, plan to take us forward to truth and, and treaty. But as far as I can see, Ian, that the, the Greens federally are, are falling in behind yep. the Yes campaign. Yeah, so the, Green, the Greens, uh, I think, have been through... They're actually maturing as a political movement, as a political party, and they're smart enough to realise... And they still wear the damage of when they held their breath and and not through a tantrum but wouldn't compromise at all when Kevin Rudd was trying to get up um, uh, the legislation around um, uh, the environment, the carbon taxes and so forth, when he was Prime Minister. And they said, no, it has to be completely over here or we're not playing ball at all. I think that that still haunts them as a memory and this is another example of... You have to go with the bigger thing, the bigger picture, in order to achieve those games. It mightn't be in the exact order you want, it mightn't be the extent that you want, but overall, it's a substantive move in a substantive direction. So I think while while Senator Thorpe, Lydia, has gone to a position of neutrality, um, that's her that's her personal decision to make. Um, but it's still broadly in line with where the Greens as a whole want to go, which is we support this. Perhaps we're not ideologically on board with the order or what comes first. But overall, I mean, my view of it is the Greens should look at it in terms of we can do all three at once. Are we not capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time? We can do all three at once. We don't have to have an order, although um, the first thing about having uh, a representative structure to articulate what ordinary Aboriginal people think would seem to be, be, be a prerequisite to how you even begin the discussions of building a treaty process. The lessons in Victoria have taught us that. I mean, the, the Greens in, in Victoria and federally have run very good campaigns the last two elections, mm-hmm. federally and both state, and they've got real momentum um, behind them. And, and here, particularly in Victoria, from, from um, you know, my peruse, they, they have um, a real vision and they're prepared mm-hmm. to work with, with, work with government. And we see that at the federal level as well, I think. And I, if that comes to the fore with, uh, with the referendum, then I think that makes a very, very powerful force. It's funny how having the balance of power in any parliament makes you grow up and realise it's one thing when you're never... We're never really going to influence policy because you just don't have any, you know, voting authority, as it were, or voting power. You can say we want it to be way over here or way over there or something, but when you actually carry the balance of power, and this is what's happening in the federal parliament and the Victorian state parliament, suddenly it's uh, time to put on your big boy pants, as they say, and you've got to work the politics and look at the bigger picture and get stuff done. Look, what I think we might do, Ian, is we might play a, a track here, um, maybe sign off on the uh, the Uluru, the voice thing, thing. Yep. <laughs> issue there and come back and uh, talk treaty after this song and a couple of uh, cuts. Cool. Sound good? Yep, that sounds great. It is 25 to 8. You're listening to The Mission on 102.7 3RRFM, the last mission of... The year uh, at the top of that bracket was uh, I Am The Crow by Leroy Johnson and the Waterbag Band. I'm sitting here with uh, Ian Ham, who is a uh, professional board member 
I think I can say that, can't I? Yeah, that's that's how I make most of my money. See, that makes me professional. <laughs> we uh, we just solved the whole referendum issue, and now we're moving on to treaty. <laughs> um, treaty has been quietly, well, not so quietly, but um, well, not for us mob anyway, um, uh, bubbling away. And there's been a lot of work that's been done through the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Um, I think the most substantial thing this year, Ian, was the... Um, I guess the, the, the establishment of the self-determination <coughs> fund. Yeah. Uh, which uh, will ensure that both sides, the state side, the state government, the Crown and First Peoples, uh, traditional owners across the state will be on an even keel when it comes to actually legally negotiating treaties. Yeah, and that's, that's actually really important. <laughs> that's actually really that's actually really important that both sides are on level ground yeah. or, or have equity in discussion around it. And I know the state's got the state's going a long way than states have ever gone before about bringing equity to this. Um, because treaty's new for everybody. I mean, this, yeah. the state of Victoria has never done one before and the Aboriginal community of Victoria has never done one before. So it is really a groundbreaking stuff. And there's no template in Australia for this. So while we've looked overseas to New Zealand uh, and looked at Canada in particular, while they... Um, provide guidance on what to expect. Ours will be in the in the Australian, and particularly the Victorian context. So I think uh, I think ensuring that that both sides are given equal status, if you like, in the in negotiations is critically important to their success. Because if it's not, if they don't have equal status, then how can there be a true uh, equitable outcome for all parties? Yeah, it's absolutely critical to to this because. The, the Crown, as we know, um, through the state of Victoria, has, you know, um, you know infinitely deep mm. pockets. And so if MOB don't have the opportunity to access um, at least the equal amount of resources that the state has to, to persecute our own case for, um, for treaties, whether they be local or statewide treaties. I mean, that's, yes. that's, that's a discussion that's happening at the, at the moment. Before we get on to that, I just wanted to um, mention a text we got in from uh, 597, um, saying, I'm a boomer and I'm supporting it, it being the referendum. Don't write us off. We're not all capitalists, neoliberalists. Remember, we also have hippie progressive backgrounds. And absolutely, we do not uh, generalise when it comes to boomers. Some of the most radical, far-out, groovy people I know are boomers. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, part of the discussion is, we going statewide or are we going local? We're going both because because that really reflects the uh, the... Um uh, the reality of the Aboriginal community. There are things that need to be looked at on a statewide basis, but there are also things that are very localised. I mean, we're a localised people. We we talk about our traditional identities. We're Yorta Yorta, yep. which is different from from uh, uh, the Tunnerong, yep. or the Jar Jar Warung, or the or the uh, uh, I don't know Muddy Muddy, or whoever you want to talk can about. I, can I? Can I? Wamba The, the whole lot. So so yes, those groups have a right to do a treaty in their own right as particular and especially nation groups in their own right. Equally, though, we also have to look at the state of Victoria, what the state of Victoria dealing with or treating with the Aboriginal community that is resident within the state of Victoria. There, That's probably where you will pick up... Well, I just said it. All, all uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people resident in the state of Victoria. Because, remember, we have a high 
migrant population, for want of a better word, mm -hmm. of people who are not from what you would call Victoria, but who've moved to Melbourne. First Nations and migrant they, communities. So yeah, we've got a, we've got a multicultural, here. we've got a very multicultural Aboriginal it, Torres Strait Islander community we here do. in Victoria. And the treaty process encapsulates them as well. Yes. It, it probably won't say much at the local level, because that will be very much centred around traditional identity, as it probably should have been. But people who are resident in those communities who are not the traditional owners should should also not be left out of the treaty process, and that's where perhaps the statewide one is a more appropriate vehicle for picking up, as I said, all First Nations people resident in the state of Victoria. Now, the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria is up for re-election um, next year as well. Um, that'll be an interesting process. I, I sense that... Um, Mob are going to be a whole lot more engaged in the elections this time around because we've seen, you know, the fabulous work that the the, mm. the assembly has been doing, and I think there's probably a lot more interest now, not only in people voting to get people that they want um, into the assembly, but also people putting their hand up to be part of the assembly as well. Um, just while I'm here, you ever got any interest in going into the uh, uh, first people's assembly? I'd probably, I'd probably like to move on to the next question, maybe because <laughs> I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that people will be getting um, their thinking caps on over the over the Christmas break as to whether they want to be how involved hmm. they want to be in this process. Um, and I encourage uh, mob out there everywhere to have a good think about that because it's a real opportunity to shape the future of this state and to improve outcomes for our for our people. So if you want to put your hand up and get involved, I encourage you to do so. Um, do you have any sort of feeling as to whether there would be sort of much change in the Assembly over the course of the next six months that's, or so? That's actually a really interesting question. Now, because at the beginning, I think quite rightly, the bulk of the Aboriginal community were... were sceptical. Sceptical, yep. hesitant... And, and we didn't get a great voter turnout, but that's okay. Now we've seen that the Assembly works. The yes. Assembly has done its job. Uh, and I think people have said, okay, we've watched it, we've seen it, we're ready to get on board. Yep. The other part too, which I think you'll have more people participating, now we're getting to the pointy end of the whole treaty process. So the first term of the Assembly was laying the groundwork, doing the framework. And they've done a fantastic job of it. They have done an excellent job of it. And dealing with some other issues as well. So... Uh, one clearly for me has been the stolen generations redress package that yep. was done at the behest of the um, the assembly, whereas the government thought that might be bumped off to a treaty. They said no, we need to deal with this now, and it has been dealt with. So I think there will be much much greater engagement by the broad Aboriginal community. Many more people will be standing now. What that means as to who gets elected in the assembly, um, I'm not even going to venture to predict what that means in an electoral outcome sense, other than to say whoever is elected has to be aware that the role is oversighting the treaty process and being part of the statewide treaty process as well. Uh, it's, not, it's not an opportunity to uh, be an advocate just inside as you perhaps would be outside of it. It's actually doing a heap of work. And any member of the current Assembly will tell people it's actually a lot of hard work, well, hard, gritty work that you have to do. And it's important to note too that uh, you know members of assembly of the assembly have been doing it for free too. They have, you know, they, yep. they have been giving away their own spare time, and we shouldn't underestimate the the not only the intellectual 
toll that it takes, but particularly the emotional toll that a lot of the discussions around treaty have taken um, since the um, establishment of, of the Assembly. And they've also shown leadership to mm. on a whole range of issues, like you said, the stolen generations. But they come out and they're advocates for um, change when it comes to child protection, yep. change when it comes to the justice system, change when it comes to place naming. That sort of thing, as we saw with the, the change of the Maroondah um, Hospital to the Queen Victoria II yeah. Hospital, which was um, a little bit flabbergasting. Um, so there was talk, in of Assembly members being um, paid in the next iteration. Do you know whether that's happening or not? The, there is. I don't know, but they, I'll be honest, there should be some level of remuneration Absolutely, for people be. because th- this is something I personally have an issue with. This notion that Aboriginal people do everything for free because it's for the good of the community, I actually think has been... Look, I'll put it on record. I think that has been abused. Yeah. I think it's quite frankly been abused by Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal institutions... Uh, I think it's time that people were reimbursed, or re- not reimbursed, but remunerated for their skill, their knowledge, their commitment. Um, I'm not talking about huge amounts of money, but there should be some remuneration for what they put in. The, the two, the co-chairs, for example, I know were were paid um, and paid as they should be paid, paid a proper amount, but they were full-time roles. Yeah. This is their job, and uh, it, look, to be honest, it's like any politicians I see controversial statement for the day. When you're a leader in politics, no amount of money compensates for the crap that you cop. Yeah. And 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 you're right about the emotional toll. And in this instance, I think uh, I think it's fair to say Aboriginal politics is, is is not that different to any other sort of politics. It's not for the faint-hearted, and it's not for those who who are. Um, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen type of thing. Yeah. It's brutal. It's messy. Uh, but politics itself is only a method to achieve the greater policy outcome you're trying to do, which is has sustained people through this, but you can tell that there are some members of the Assembly who perhaps have said, I've done my bit, I'm, I'm, I'm finished now, it is for others to step up and, and, and take leadership on this. Well, one, one thing we can say for sure is that no-one on the Crown side will be negotiating uh, as a volunteer they will no, all be paid. Absolutely, they will be. They'll all be paid. Profession. Well, that's their role. It'll be interesting to see how the Crown approaches it because um, uh, in my old days, in the, my back in the days when I was a public servant, which was all of four and a bit years ago, the, the state wasn't overly embursed with people who could do this. Now, this is... And those that they did, which were the Traditional Owner Settlement Act agreements, they were good agreements, but they're small beer compared to what we're talking about now. So the state itself has to skill itself up to be able to do this properly as no well. No one's done this before. No. In no. this country. No. Uh, it is uh, 13 to, uh, to 8. Gee, time is uh, cracking on. Um, let's just uh, one more thing on treaty. What do, you, what, do you, what do you see as some of the major obstacles or barriers to, to the next iteration of where we get to with treaty? Is there anything that you can foresee that we need to start thinking about now? I, 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 think, there'll be, I think there will be that the early part of it will be people just sussing themselves out. What role do they play? Where do they fit in? I think the role of the treaty authority, which is which is to be appointed, uh, what is the role that they play and how do they support the parties to get to where they need to go? Um, and it's interesting when you look at other treaty processes um, because this, this idea of negotiation has is... Uh, uh, negotiating as equals is only relatively new to us. Yeah. Previously, it's been from a position of of uh, um, uh, well, 
for it's Aboriginal people. It's been very people. uneven. It's been extraordinarily uneven. Now this is even skilling up people to be able to do that and the treaty authority what's the role it plays what authorities does it have what doesn't it have so i think there's a fair bit there but ultimately we have to give it the time to work itself through and it'll be particularly important with the first couple so the first couple of of regional ones yep let them go through let give them the time they need because you learn lessons off them as they go and the state one that'll be a lesson not just for victoria but for the rest of the nation who is all looking at us to, to see where we go so that they can learn from us about what they do and what they don't do. Let's um, play a couple of cards and then we'll move on to the Uruk Justice Commission, which you uh, presented at uh, last week or the week before. Uh, I think it was the week before. All right, well, let's play some cards, pay some bills and come back and we'll talk about the Uruk Justice Commission. I'm speaking with uh, Ian Ham, Yorta Yorta Man and uh, All Rounder. Time is flying by this evening, the last um, episode of the mission for 2022. Uh, in the studio with me is uh, Ian Ham, and we're talking about things that have occurred this year and things that will be going on and continuing on that will be affecting mob and all of us um, over the coming 12 months, at least and beyond. One of those things, and one of the areas that I think where the the road, um, the rubber has really hit the road is the Rook Justice Commission in 2022. And particularly for me, over the last couple of weeks, the coverage that the hearings of the Commission have been receiving in broadstream, mainstream um, media in relation to the uh, justice system and the child protection system, I can really start to see now the impact that that Commission is going to have, not only on things like treaty, but also on the story of this place now known as Victoria and potentially things down the line like uh, like the curriculum that will end up in schools. So much of so many resources can be developed and generated from the heart, often heart-rendering testimony of people that are giving up their time to speak truth, the truth of their story and, and the truth of what was done to them. Um, let's just have a brief summary. You presented to the Commission just recently. Yes, I did. What did you present about and what, what did you want to convey to the to Okay, the community? so I was part of the... Uh, I got asked if I could speak in the um, during the week when they were focusing on um, uh, child... Uh, protection. Child protection. And uh, it wasn't particularly about the child protection system or instances of how it operates on a daily basis. I actually don't have a background in that. But what they were interested in was my bigger perspective or view on systems, how the system has failed, how the system doesn't work. And looking beyond the management or operational level of the child correction, uh, child protection system, a, a question I posed in part of my statement was, what are the circumstances which lead to our children coming to the attention of the child protection system, because most of the most of the evidence and uh, that had been given in statements was focusing on how the system operates, but the question of why are our children in those circumstances in the first place hadn't been asked. So I posed that and put forward some ideas around that. Um, I also got asked about my own story um, because one of the things that has often come up is people talk about, oh, this is another stolen generation. Well, it it is and it's not. Yeah. People of my generation, the stolen children, we were taken for one single reason, one simple and single reason. We were born black. That's why we were taken. I say that as somebody who's 58 years old. We were taken because we were born black. No other reason. That was the fundamental reason. That's it. 
children now are removed for a whole host of reasons and not all Aboriginal children are taken. So it's a different cause. However, if it's not managed differently to the way it was managed in my day, and that's one of the issues with the child protection system now, the outcome will be the same. same. Children who are disconnected from family, community, culture and country, and when when they're churned out of the sausage machine that is the child protection system, they'll be dislocated, disconnected, and they will be the same, the same mess that a lot of us were decades ago. Yeah, it's a tragedy that you can see. Well, it's not even it's not even in slow motion anymore. No. You know, it's a tragedy that's actually unfolding in front of us at what, a rapid rate. Watching a car ca- car crash in real time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How important do you think Uruk is going to be when it has done its business? I, I see it as tremendously important it's, myself. It, it's in, it, it's. Its importance has grown as it's gone, yeah. it, gone on. So it's not only important in terms of, uh, of filling in the narrative of Victoria's history, which is, if you think about Victoria as a book, there are, several, there are pages throughout that book that are blank. The Aboriginal narrative is left out. And then there's a whole chapter, which is the story of Aboriginal Victoria. That's left out. Those pages are blank. Yeah. This commission is helping fill in those blank pages. The other part, though, is that as a... As a Royal Commission, it's a different approach to any other Royal Commission. It has the powers of a Royal Commission, just reminding people, yeah? Yeah, it has the powers of a Royal Commission. It's a different one in that it's not trying to find fault with individuals or an incident that happened like the Banking Royal Commission or the inquiry into the COVID handling or anything like that. It's actually actually bringing together a collective story of many narratives that's not pointing the finger at individuals. But we'll write a report, I hope we'll come up with a report that says this is who we are and this is perhaps where we should go rather than your bland set of normal recommend. I say bland, your normal set of recommendations that yeah. come out of Royal Commissions. That are often ignored. Exactly. Uh, look, we're, we're rapidly running out of time here. Um, uh, thanks for coming in. Oh. There's, a, there's a song I want to play at the end, so that's yeah, why no, that's I'm cool. wrapping that's this cool. up. Um, and it's a very special song. Um just to circle back around to the to the referendum, just briefly, um, what does it need to do to, to win the campaign for yes? To win the yes campaign, it's got to be broken down to simple stuff. So if you think of the 67 referendum, on the ballot paper, there was the question of should Aboriginal people be included in the census and should the Commonwealth make laws for Aboriginal people? The other questions on the ballot paper, they weren't the real questions. The real questions were, do these people belong in this country? Do these people have a place in this nation? And the answer came back, yes, they do. And for this referendum, uh, the three-part question that Anthony Albanese articulated, should there be a voice to Parliament, should should its role be this, and should the Commonwealth make laws about it, its operation and so forth, that'll be on the ballot paper. The real question, and this is everybody listen to this carefully, the real questions are, do these people, should these people be heard? Do these people have a right to speak? That's the real questions of this referendum. Each and every one of you ask yourself, in relation to Aboriginal people, do these people have a right to be heard? Do these people have a right to speak? That's the real questions. Ian Ham, thank you so much for your time. Um, Have a safe break. Everyone else out there, have a safe break too. I'll be back in February. Um, Daniel's up next. Um, stick stick around, he'll be with us through to 10 Um, It's been a tumultuous year for us We've lost some of our most pressured elders So what better way to play out Than uh, 
this particular song. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.